Hey, welcome to Alex Listens, a podcast about um, philosophy, identity, anything really. Um, it's pretty hard to to list the things that the podcast is about. Um, but hey, it's me, Alex. Hi, how are you? Hope you're well. Um, now, today there's a pretty cool guest on the podcast. Um, his name's Peter Singer. And this is actually a rerun of an interview that I did with uh, a dear friend of mine called Liam. Uh, we did this interview two years ago, um, or nearly two years ago, maybe 18 months ago. Um, and it's quite interesting. Like, if, if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you will know that I have... Maybe, maybe you'll know that... At least I think I've got an idiosyncratic interviewing style. I guess everyone has an idiosyncratic interviewing style, but this was the first interview that I ever did. Um, and it was with Peter Singer. So I guess that was the highest and lowest point of my life um, ever and ever and ever. Um, so yeah, uh, I hope I hope you like I hope you like it. But first, first of all, I need to make an announcement. And that is that um, if you're enjoying the podcast, which I hope you are, uh, you should support it, and you can support it in a number of ways. Um, and I have vowed in every single episode to never have ads on this podcast. So please go and support the podcast. You can do so on Patreon. Um, Patreon is a great platform. It allows you to become a patron of the podcast. And um, every time I release an episode, you know, the, it's it's it will be as though you're buying me a tea or something, um, something to keep me going. So because, yeah, I, I mean, this... Um, I guess the more money that the more the more money that is uh, circulating in this podcast space, um, the better the guests, the better the research will be that I'm able to do, and I guess the more time I'll be able to spend. Whatever you know how it goes. I don't need to talk to you, but seriously, if you are if you are enjoying it and you're in a position to um, to do to support it, please consider doing so. Um, okay, so back to Peter Singer. Um, he is. If you don't know who he is, uh, I don't know who you are. Um, no, I, I mean, I probably don't know who you are, uh, but Peter Singer is probably the most influential philosopher of the 21st century. Um, he, I guess he made veganism and vegetarianism mainstream. Uh, he has pioneered the effective altruism movement, which is a movement about, uh, I guess, being an effective altruist. And what does that mean? That means using your money in a way that does good things for people who don't have the kind of financial privilege that you do. Um, so in this interview, we spoke about, um, ah, so I listened to it recently, but I'm trying to remember what we actually spoke about. Um, we spoke about AI, um, which is really interesting because a lot's changed in 18 months. And i I still feel as though the things that Peter Singer said are relevant. Um, we spoke about, uh, climate change. We spoke about identity, and I don't think Peter Singer has ever been has ever really spoken about his experience as um, a, a Jewish migrant or as being the, the child of Jewish migrant parents. And so he spoke about that, and that was really interesting. Um, and he also he also told me to go and see a, a psychotherapist, which is pretty cool. Um, maybe you don't think it's cool. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, I do. I do see. Uh, I do see a therapist, but thanks, Peter. Thanks for 
Thanks for letting me know that you also think I should be in therapy. That's pretty cool. Um, anyway, enjoy enjoy the episode. Um, this is the shortest introduction I've ever done. For those of you who told me to make them shorter, mom, <clears throat> um, thanks thanks for being uh, thanks for thanks for shitting on my work. No, <laughs> yeah. But uh, if you're into philosophy, if you're into ethics, if you're into identity politics, uh, you should go back and listen to any of my other episodes. Um, they're all they're all pretty cool. I hope. Um, and yeah. Oh, and one other thing that I realized that I didn't mention was that Peter Singer gave me relationship advice, which is pretty cool. So if you listen um, to the whole thing, it's kind of littered throughout because we asked him. He's been married for like 50 something years. That's crazy. Um, and, and I was like, hey, Peter, you know, I've been single for 50,000 years, man. How how are you going to, um, you know? How are you going to change my world? Anyway, um, I hope you enjoy the episode. It's pretty cool. Bye. Um, so you spent your life explaining arguments around utilitarianism and veganism. What can you do when someone goes, oh, yeah, but nah, I just love lamb chops, mate. Is there anything you can do when someone doesn't respond to a sound philosophical argument? There are some things you can say to that uh but in a way, the person who says, you know, yes, I agree with your arguments that it's wrong to eat uh, whatever it is that that person is, is loving, um, but nevertheless he just loves it, uh, that's getting pretty close to the point at which you've run out of argument, right? <laughs> what you can then do is to discuss, you know, what are you living for? Do you get fulfillment and satisfaction out of your life? Do you have values that you think uh, go beyond uh, enjoying the food you eat? And uh, would you perhaps have a more fulfilling and meaningful life if you lived in accordance with some values other than uh, the values of a, a glutton or, <laughs> not to be pejorative, maybe a gourmet? <laughs> Liam Liam's um, a glutton. <laughs> uh, but, you know, is that really going to satisfy you uh, throughout your life and, and give you that meaning and purpose that most people crave? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, maybe this guy is going to say, well, I don't crave it, you know, I, I'm I just happy to live from one moment and what to the next and one pleasant sensation to the next mm. at that point it does get a bit hard to push this much further mm. Mm. see i actually i feel like i understand logic and reason but you know only some of the time because there are instances where when i'm you know particularly anxious about something i feel like the anxiety just blocks any capacity to think logically to think rationally um do you think there's any way to get around this? Do you, do you have any advice for anyone who feels like, you know, they're, they're listening to Peter Singer talk, but maybe there's something getting in the way and stopping them from thinking logically? Well, what you've described is really a, a psychological problem right, uh, right. about the fact that you sometimes get anxious and don't think logically. And I think you would acknowledge that you're making mistakes then and you're not only making mistakes from an ethical perspective, <coughs> excuse me, but you're you know, quite possibly making mistakes from your own self-interest as well. Right, right, right. People do that when they're anxious or in some sort of state where they're not thinking calmly and clearly. They make decisions that they later regret because they end up harming themselves or they end up harming someone they love or care for. Hmm. So um, <clears throat> I think that's, you know, maybe you need to go to a psychotherapist <laughs> and, <that's laughs> right. and not to a philosopher. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for <laughs> the diagnosis, um, Peter. <coughs> Yeah, so on the topic of uh, rational and logical thinking, um, I was wondering, me and Liam actually spoke about this. We've been talking about it quite a lot recently. But can someone who is an emotional thinker, so um, 
someone you know who is high on the neurotic scale, can they also be a rational thinker? Because um, the reason why I ask this is because, yeah, you know, people who tend to be emotionally unstable, can they be, you talk a lot about effective altruism, can they be good effective altruists when it's not coming from a place of logic or from a place of reason? I, I certainly think they can be good effective altruists who have strong emotions that motivate their altruism, right, right. their giving. Uh, so, for example, many people, and I perhaps include myself among them, have strong emotions when you think of people suffering unnecessarily. A lot of, you know, if you could, you could say, is there a common thread in all the things I've written about, whether it's about effective altruism, about humans, about global poverty, about altruism, about uh, legalising uh, voluntary euthanasia. Right, right. Um, all of those things could be seen as response to the existence of unnecessary suffering. Of course. And I have a, an emotional response to that. I think I can defend that logically as well. Right, right. Um, so to that extent, my answer would be yes. But you did have that word unstable in there. And that suggests emotions that change pretty rapidly and unpredictably and not under the control of our reflection and thought. Right. Uh, and that is likely to impair your effectiveness as an altruist. Uh, because there may be times when you don't care about suffering and you therefore don't do things which could easily prevent large amounts of suffering. Right, and right. later on you may regret that. Right. Or perhaps more commonly, um, you might fluctuate in who you care about. Oh. So you might um, care deeply and strongly about some people who are close to you at one point and then at other times you may realise that actually you could do much more good by helping people who are strangers to you. But right, right, right. Much greater poverty, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, and so your actions are going to reflect the state of your emotions at that time and you'll do less good than you would if you had a stronger sense of uh, I want to do the most good that I can and that will sometimes mean acting contrary to my emotional attachments for people who are close to me. Right, right. <clears throat> okay. Um, yeah, I, I thought that we would deal with... Um uh, you know, veganism and effective altruism quite briefly because you've spoken so extensively about this on a million podcasts all over the world. So we didn't think... Um, sure, I'm happy to talk about something different. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so speaking of something different, um, I'd like to jump onto the topic of AI, of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So um, I was listening to a podcast, Radio Lab, recently, um, and they said that in... Well, they were interviewing someone from Volvo and the person from Volvo said that in 2021, Volvo will release their first self-driving car. Um, and so this means that, well, at least, you know, the first thing that I thought of being a diehard Peter Singer fan, <laughs> I was like, oh, utilitarianism. What does this mean? Does this mean that there, no, it actually means that there is going to be someone who is going to have to engineer the car to make a decision in a traffic accident. So this is, you know, possibly, no, it is maybe a modern day trolley problem. Um, so the question is, should we expect every engineer or the engineer of these self-driving cars to be a utilitarianist so that every car crash kills or, well, injures the least amount of people? And let me just put one more thing um, to you. Uh, so imagine that you are in a car driving down a freeway at 100 kilometers an hour and, you know, two fools stupidly run across the freeway in front of you. This means that Potentially, cars are going to be programmed to kill you every single time. So, because, you know, one life is less than two. Is this right? Well, firstly, since it's a Volvo, and Volvo has a great reputation for 
internal car safety. <laughs> right. I would hope they would design the car so that you can crash it at 100 kilometres an hour into but a This podcast wall. is not sponsored by a <laughs> <laughs> and And walk away. Um, so that dilemma wouldn't arise. <laughs> but, you know, philosophers always are discussing hypothetical dilemmas, mm, so course, I'll just accept the argument that you are in a situation where either you have to kill the driver or you have to kill two other people. Right, right. Um, and I would agree that uh, it would be best if the engineers did design the car so that it kills the fewest number of people or right, the right, right. Number, uh, smallest number of people. Um, but there's a problem, at least in a free market society, in that uh, you want people to buy your cars. And if people don't buy your cars, there's no point in, in building them. Right. So if someone <laughs> else thinks, aha, Volvo is building these cars that will kill the driver in preference to killing two strangers. Right, right, right. Um, I'm going to build a car that will always kill strangers uh, rather than the driver. And I'm going to make that a big selling point of my car. Right, <laughs> right. You're safer in my car because my car... Is we'll kill other people, kill strangers. <laughs> even a hundred strangers. Right? You could, you could have, a, you could imagine the car ad of the car plowing right, right. into a huge crowd of strangers Jeez. and the driver smiling and walking out. <laughs> and, uh, well, should uh, work in marketing. <laughs> yeah. So the question is: so if, if let's just assume for the moment that that would actually sell more cars, right, right, then you've got this prisoner's dilemma situation because. Um, we would all ideally, if if you know, behind the veil of ignorance, we don't know whether we're going to be the pedestrian or the person in the car, the right. driver. We would all do better if we minimise the number of people killed. Right, of um, course. But if you have a situation where engineers are allowed to design cars to protect the driver and kill many people, um, that, and if we assume that people will preferentially buy those cars then those cars are going to get made. Right. So the solution to that is not in the hands of the engineer, it's right, in the right. hands of the government. Right, right, to or, make something or uniform. Or to enact, right. That, right, right. that's right, that cars ought to minimise casualties. Okay, okay. Um, okay, so uh, we've spoken a lot about casualties, which is um, which has been rough, but um, <laughs> we, uh, just one last question on the topic. Um, I imagine that many people would, well, at least... I'm speaking on um, for myself. I struggle to deal or reconcile with the idea of an engineered death. Um, so, do you think then, after having spoken about engineers designing cars either to kill one person or to kill more people, depending on you know whether you're buying Volvo or Volkswagen, um, do you think it's okay for people to relinquish control over their lives and live to algorithms or live under the control of algorithms? Uh, so I think we need to be a little more specific here, right? What do you mean by living under the control of algorithms? Uh, I mean, maybe relinqu relinquishing control. So instead of, you know, sitting behind the wheel and you right. get... So in that particular instance, I say, yes, that's fine. If, okay. if, if indeed, you know, there's obviously a condition here. Right. If, if indeed it's true that the, uh, the algorithms uh, and the sensory perception mechanism of the car is such that in the long run, the car will cause fewer accidents, fewer harms uh, through self-drive mechanisms than the typical driver would. Okay. Then I think if I have no reason to think that I'm any better than the typical driver, I think I should relinquish control of the car right. to those algorithms. Okay, okay. Um, 
But that's because that's, 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 that's a pretty specific case where we recognise our own fallibilities mm, mm. Uh, and it seems reasonable to, to do what will lead the best consequences. No, because I guess they're already doing that. You know, in the sky we have self-driving planes or, you know, planes that they can put on autopilot. Right, um, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, uh, you know, I think this is happening, for example, in, in surgery that we're getting um, auto-guided knives that oh, are maybe right. more more accurate than right, right. Yeah. they don't have the shaky yeah. hand of the, <laughs> the scalpel right. Right. Oh, right. the surgeon yeah. right um okay and on a similar topic we're still talking about technology but um briefly what do you think about big data and mass surveillance um so you know on one hand mass surveillance can stop criminal plots and all that kind of stuff but do you think it's at a certain cost well there's a potential cost for abuse clearly and uh, therefore it if you're talking about authoritarian governments which want to control their citizens and prevent any dissent, then uh, there's clearly a danger here. Right, right, right. Uh, but um, to me, that's it's it's that danger question of abuse and can we safeguard against abuse and can we maintain a society in which the data is not abused? Right. That's the big question. Right. Uh, for some people, the question is simply one of the existence of the data anywhere, that uh, the, the loss of privacy uh, when many salient facts about me are recorded and stored somewhere. Right, right. right. Uh, and I'm, I'm less worried about that. Okay. Um, I don't think we ought to... You know, so, for example, I wouldn't not think about opting out of my health records um, right, right, just right. because I don't want knowledge about my health state to be on mm. a computer somewhere. Okay. Um, it doesn't bother me at all. Right, right. right. Uh, you know, if... You know, let's say that I did have some uh, embarrassing disease that might be used to harm me, maybe mm. uh, whatever it might be. Um, change, right? Right, uh, and some, and there was a risk that somebody would get this knowledge and would use it to damage my reputation, right. uh, or blackmail me, or whatever. Then I would be concerned. Right. But if it's simply being stored on machines and is properly protected against um, misuse. That's fine, and and if of course you know the fact that it's there means that should I have an accident somewhere away from my uh, local health records, mm -hmm. there's a doctor who will know what the problems are and will be able to help treat me better. That's that's a big plus. Okay, um, yeah, on to Liam. I think I've I've spoken for quite a while, so. <laughs> Um, yeah, a bit of a gear change here. Um, Peter, you've said that climate change is probably the single greatest moral challenge facing the world in the 21st century. And yet on the news every night, you'd be forgiven it for thinking that it's crime or terrorism or something like this. Why isn't everyone constantly frightened about climate change every day? Is this a case of the frog being boiled very slowly? <laughs> Well, that's that's a good metaphor. The whole world is being boiled very slowly, <laughs> not just the frog, although the frogs will be victims as well. Um, no, but I think there's something else going on here, and it's uh, something about uh, the fact that we're evolved beings who have lived for untold generations in a world in which uh, there was this risk of violence at the hands of other human beings, or perhaps at the hands of predatory animals too for that matter but um, you know mostly we deal with that threat so but but violence at the hands of other human beings is something that we have in you know developed uh, a fear of uh, because it helps us to avoid being a victim of that violence and so when newspapers report crimes that uh, arouses our interest in some way because we have this evolved capacity to be fearful about this and to worry that this could happen to us and so we read it avidly and we buy the newspapers or listen to the, watch the TV news and of course 
that increases the audience for advertising, so they do it more. Mm. Now, if you think about climate change, on the other hand, uh, this has never been a problem until now, and we have no evolved mechanisms for detecting releases of greenhouse gases. Um, and the fact that it's happening in the future is also something that we don't cope with that well. We've generally evolved to deal with immediate threats, not with distant threats, mm. perhaps because we couldn't do so much about long-term futures mm -hmm. in the past. So I think that that's what's going on, and that's why um, it doesn't feature as much in the news, because there aren't things that the news can use to actually arouse us emotionally in the same way that it can with, let's say, stories about crime. And news is immediate rather than future-oriented, usually. Yes, that's right, typically. And, and things that are there all the time, I mean, it's not, it's not only climate change, it's also, for example, global poverty. Um, so there'll be a big headline about some unfortunate person who was brutally murdered in the, in, in the city. Um, there'll be no headline that says, uh, today 20,000 families were lifted out of extreme poverty and as a result of that uh, you know, there will be 100 fewer children dying from some poverty-related disease. Um, because that's actually happening every day. We are mm. reducing the number of people in extreme poverty. We are reducing the number of children who die from poverty-related causes. Um, just since I wrote my book, The Life You Can Save, which was published in 2009, mm. the number of children under five dying uh, from avoidable poverty-related causes has fallen from 9.8 million to 5.9 million. So right, right. You know, that's, that's an enormous mm. change uh, that's going on all the time. But the papers don't report it precisely because it is going on all the time. Right, right. Um, just quickly, you said that um, news appeals to emotion. Um, so I was just wondering, uh, do you think it, it appeals to emotion rather than appealing to logic? Um, and I also, I would, as a guess, I would, I would imagine that your philosophy almost deals exclusively in logic rather than emotion. Oh, it sounds like you appeal to people on logical grounds. Um, what, do you, what do you make of news appealing to people? On emotional I grounds. think a lot of news does appeal to people on emotional grounds right. um, because I think that does engage most people's interests more. Um, I think we're, we're a complex mix of, of reason and emotion. And, right, right. Uh, but, but in terms of motivating us to stay tuned to that channel, for example, um, probably for the majority of people, not for all, but probably for the majority of people, the fact that something is arousing your emotions is more likely to make you stay tuned than the fact that it's engaging your rational capacities. So this is a concern, and of course, you know, you then raise the question: Well, here am I, a philosopher, and I'm appealing <laughs> to people's rational capacities. Right, right. Um, but you know, so I accept that um, my books are never going to sell at the same level as uh, the best popular fiction that appeals to people's emotions. No, in, only 500,000 for right. animal liberation. Right? right, that's right. <laughs> but not the multi-millions that, uh, you know, Harry Potter or whoever sells. <laughs> I was joking, I was joking. <laughs> um, so, so, but, you know, what you hope, of course, is that uh, at some level of society, people making important decisions are more influenced by reasoning and logic uh, and, of course, the facts, you know, proper understanding of evidence and what that points to uh, than by emotions. Um, and this is one of the problems about whether democracy can actually continue to elect people who appeal to reason and logic 
against the sort of skilled opposition of people who are clearly appealing to emotions. Hmm. Okay. Um, we might just shift gear once again and, you know, similar on a, on a um, political topic, but we'll talk about capitalism um, and consumer culture for now. Um, so this, yeah, this, I listened to a, um, I listened to you speak and um, on YouTube and you were talking about Thanksgiving in the US and how to treat it and what it means for, you know, all of these, these hundreds of millions of people eating turkey. Um, and I thought about, you know, you mentioned the American dream and I thought about, hey, what about you know, Australia? This is the lucky country. What does that actually mean? And I thought, you know, the conception of Australia being the lucky country seems not to connote an escape from poverty, but to connote a movement towards a life of luxury. So do you think, you know, to defeat this um, culture of meat eating and, you know, lamb on the barbie and whatnot, um, do we need to redefine the image of Australia so that it's the lucky country, not because um, it's based on excessive consumption and, you know, opulence, but it's based on something else? Do you think this redefinition needs to happen and how? Uh, I do think that it's important to have a sense of what's uh, really good about Australia and I think that is much more being able to treat people decently uh, across the board in our society, um, being able to accept diversity and difference in our society and not use that as a weapon for casting people out and uh, discriminating against them. Mm. Uh, so I think those are things to celebrate uh, about Australian society, not that we're at all perfect in, in those things, of course, mm -hmm. but I think we, on the whole, do a, make a reasonable fist of, of that. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, yes, that we provide for all of our citizens, that we provide them with uh, a minimal level of income, we provide them with housing, hopefully most of them anyway, um, if they need it. Uh, we provide them with education, we provide them with universal health care. Uh, those are all things that are important. And uh, living a, a life of luxury and indulgence, I think, is less important than the fact that everybody has sufficient. Right. Okay. Um, and on that note of um, of capitalism, I've often thought that, um, you know, one of the bases of Australian society or Western society more generally is competition. You know, we're obsessed with watching athletes compete. Um, we're also taught that, you know, we need to work hard, achieve more, study more, volunteer more, you know, or else risk the masses overtaking us and us being a failure. Um, so what effects do you think that this kind of constant competition have on our morals and also our well-being? Well, competition has both good and bad effects, clearly. Uh, it has good effects because it does spur people to work harder and to do better. And if the system can use that for the benefit of all, so competition encourages students to study harder, let's say, and therefore they become better at whatever it is they're studying to do, whether it's being engineers or doctors or lawyers or philosophers, um, they do it better. Then, then that's a positive. But, uh, of course, it does have this side that somebody has to lose in these competitions and then the question is that they're going to feel bad about themselves and they're going to, uh, are they going to be able to continue to have a life in which they have reasonable self-esteem and in which they provide for themselves? Uh, so I think we need to be aware of that and I think we need to make sure that the competition is such that there are reasonable options for those who don't do well in the competition as well as uh, perhaps somewhat inevitably somewhat better options for those who do well. 
Um, yeah, and so um, I think you've also been quoted as saying that capitalism is still the best system. Um, so I think could you just elaborate a tiny bit more on that? Yeah, I, I think I would phrase it slightly differently. I would say we don't really know of a system that works better than capitalism mm -hmm. uh, on a large scale. Uh, so there may be better systems, and that's why I wouldn't just, just flat out say yeah, capitalism yeah. is the best system. Mm -hmm. I would say we, we haven't got another system that has been tried and shown to work better um, at, the, at a national level, let's say, as distinct from maybe smaller groups. Um, and even smaller groups you know, haven't always worked that well when you try to introduce equality or socialism, something like that. You can think about the Israeli kibbutzim, which were idealistic, relatively small socialist communities, and basically most of them have lost their early idealism. Uh, mm. So uh, I think for people who say, well, you know, capitalism is the root of all evil, then uh, you need to say, well, what's the system that you want to replace it with and how do we know that that's really going to work well? Hmm. Uh, and until somebody answers that question satisfactorily uh, and then they also, of course, need to answer the further question of how are we going to actually replace capitalism with this better system, um, until we do that, I think we ought to just accept that capitalism is here for the foreseeable future and uh, let's try to make it compatible with a decent life for everyone. Let's soften it around the edges, in other words. Um, but uh, let's not just dream of, of overthrowing it uh, when there's lots of things that we can do to make the world better within a capitalist framework. Right, right. And do you have any suggestions as to what the, the next great system can be? <laughs> no, I don't really. I mean, I suppose that I would like a more egalitarian system, uh, one in which... Uh, everybody could feel that they had a proper place and role and um, it's difficult to make that compatible with capitalism because it does always mean that some will do better than others and right, that right. people will be trying to profit from others and mm. uh, make advantage, take advantage of them. Mm. Uh, but uh, a capitalist economic system with a comprehensive social welfare system in place Right. providing uh, those goods I mentioned for all, minimum mm. income, um, uh, universal health care, universal education. Uh, they seem to me to be about the, the best we could do. Um, I mentioned minimal income and there's a lot of research going on now about providing a universal basic income for all. Yeah, right, uh, right. And I think uh, you know, I'm following that, that kind of experimental projects in mm. different parts of the world uh, with some interest because that may be a way of putting a, a floor um, uh, as to, you know, everybody is at least at this level yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and then some will work harder and be more gifted and compete better and do significantly better than that. Right, but at right. least everybody will have sufficient. Okay. Do you think that um, a universal basic income could potentially take away that incentive to work harder though? Well, that's clearly what uh, people are concerned about and that's what some of these pilot projects are actually testing. So, uh, you know, we're th that's going on both in uh, developed countries, affluent countries, uh, and also in uh, East Africa, uh, where an organisation called Give Directly is trialling a, a minimal income. Uh, and, and, you know, the idea will then be to see whether when people get this minimal income, they work less hard and therefore their total income is not really greater or they're not significantly better off and happier than they were before, or whether 
Um, in fact, it provides them with opportunities to do other things that mean that their lives are significantly better. Uh, and that's just an, uh, a factual question. We can't really answer it mm. out of theory. We need to look at the data and when the data's all in, we'll have a better idea. Do you believe that human beings are inherently selfish? I think human beings uh, typically have a tendency to be selfish, um, but they also have capacities to be unselfish, to be altruistic. So probably the, the selfish side of human nature is stronger because that's what our ancestors needed if they were to survive mm. and reproduce and pass on their genes. If they had been entirely altruistic, then we wouldn't be here. Uh, so I suppose my answer, that makes my answer to your question um, on the whole, yes, but not entirely so. Mm. Um, you mentioned evolution a couple of times there. Is this, um, has, has Darwinian thought played a big role in the evolution of your own beliefs? Yes, I think uh, Darwinian thinking enables us to understand why we're like we are and uh, it's important for philosophers to understand human nature, especially if you're talking about putting, you know, changing social circumstances. Uh, you can't just do that as if we were somehow a tabula rasa that you could write on and uh, do whatever you want. And you know, arguably the problem with uh, sort of egalitarian socialism or communism was that it thought that human nature was more flexible, more, more plastic than it really is. And it thought that if you throw out the capitalist system, then humans will suddenly become cooperative and unselfish. And obviously, if you look at uh, the Soviet Union, that did not happen. So uh, I do think that it's important to understand that we have evolved uh, through a, some kind of competition for survival and for reproducing, and uh, that that has led to the inheritance within us of those qualities and characteristics which helped our ancestors to survive. Okay. Um, speaking of qualities and characteristics, um, so there was this study done on uh, American soldiers post-Vietnam War um, and they were trying to measure you know, how well they were coping. And in one of the sections, they split them into college-educated and non-college-educated. And they found that the college-educated soldiers were much better equipped to deal with the atrocities of war because you know, they were well-versed in reason, reason and, you know, logical thinking. Um, so I guess I, the question I'm about to ask is tied to the importance of education. Um, and possibly also, how do you think education, do you think it impinges on our capacity to be emotional? Because I guess the, the conclusion from this study was that college education equals reason. No college education equals, you know, um, lesser ability to reason. Yeah, I don't know how the study would actually control for the fact that the people who went to college might have had a better ability to reason in the first right, place. Right, right, right. Um, so that could be part of the problem mm. there. Okay. Uh, it could just be a correlation. Yeah, but I do think that uh, developing capacities for reason and developing self-reflection and self-awareness about the role of emotions play in our own life, uh, I think that that's useful for... Um, getting beyond merely being moved by our, our emotions. And I think it's very dangerous for people to simply rest with their emotions. It's dangerous both for them because there are powerful emotions that might be very bad for you, like 
pursuing revenge when you ought not to try to pursue revenge. Right, That's right, a right. powerful emotion we have. Uh, but it's also bad for society because uh, people will... Um, People may be led to do things that are really bad for others um, because we 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 familiar throughout history with this idea of groups doing things, getting together and carrying out all kinds of atrocities which uh, within the group at the time maybe seemed okay or there were social pressures to participate in it to not to not to dissent from it uh, and yet then when we look back and we think you know. How could people have done those kinds of things? Right. So on the topic of um, group or pack mentality, specifically with regards to toxic masculinity, um, how do you think this plays out in Australia? Uh, you know, it seems like groups of men together can be pretty problematic. Uh, I think we're actually making progress with that. You know, right. if you think Australian masculinity is toxic today, you should have seen it when I was an undergraduate. <laughs> right, right, I right, think right. it was, was much worse. Right, um, right. And... I think you know there are things today which we call out um, and object to, right. which uh, nobody objected to before. Right, right. Uh, so um, I think what that shows is that you can make progress. You can bring up um, even Australian males to be uh, more thoughtful, more considerate, more respectful of others, whether they're females in general or Australian males who don't fit the norm. Right, right, right. Um, uh, you know, so yeah, I, I do think we can make progress with that. Okay, right, right. So on the topic of um, speaking, or you know, influencing um, large numbers of people as you have, um, do you feel? Have you ever felt as though the fame or popularity has, you know, gotten in the way of, of your life or, of this um, this adventure you've been on in philosophy? <laughs> no, I don't really think so. I think actually more often it's it's provided opportunities and right. and open doors. Um, I don't know. Maybe my uh, my children have sometimes found it a bit annoying that uh, people <laughs> knew their father and had strong views about their father as a view. But um, you know, they seem to have got over it. They've turned out fine. So, um, so I, no, I don't really regret that. Okay. Um, we note that you've been married for a whopping fifty years now. So <laughs> almost. Don't, almost. Oh, okay. So forty nine. Forty nine. There's, a, there's another uh, what five months to go. Okay. <laughs> We're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Um, so what we wanted to ask was, are there any secrets you can reveal to any budding lo- lovebirds listening to our show as to how to maintain such a long relationship? Uh, well, um, one thing is I think, and this is difficult to do when you're young, is to you know, get together with somebody whose values uh, are in some ways similar to yours. They're not identical. That would, might be too boring. But um, <laughs> at least that you can respect their values and the way they think about things so that you right. can talk about that. And hopefully, and this is, I think, the way it's worked with Renata, my wife and myself, uh, where those values have changed and developed, um, they've changed and developed more or less together in similar lines. Mm. So I think that's been um, an important part of our success in staying together. We're certainly not the same people that we were uh, when we got married nearly 50 years ago, but we've changed in ways that have kept us close and compatible. So that, that's that's the first thing. Um, the other thing is I think we give each other a certain amount of, of space for doing uh, our own things. We don't have identical interests and uh, we don't feel, I think, you know, at one stage Paul and Linda McCartney said that after being together for many years that they'd never spend a night apart or something like that. Oh, um, that seems a bit that's claustrophobic a to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, you do need to sometimes have some, some space for doing your own things, but, you know, you... you Stay close and, uh, and respect what each other's doing. Mm. 
Um, so many people, um, including yourself, are very worried about the state of world politics at the moment, particularly with Trump, but also the rise of the far right um, gaining in popularity, uh, particularly in parts of Europe. Um, are you hopeful that a better, a better world for all is on its way or, or are you concerned about increasing tribalism um, taking us down a dark path? You'd have to be concerned in the light of developments, uh, particularly the election of, of Donald Trump but also the Brexit referendum and then the election of right-wing governments in uh, Hungary and Poland. Uh, uh, but I'm, you know, so I'm, I'm less optimistic than I was, but I am still remain on the whole positive. I'm encouraged by some of the by-election results in the United States where the Democrats have done reasonably well, and I'm hopeful that they'll continue to do well at the midterm November elections for Congress, uh, and that Trump will be a one-term president. Uh, if Trump is re-elected, I will have to reassess my optimism, <laughs> I must admit. Uh, as far as Europe is concerned, um, it's you know it's not looking particularly good, but um, it's a it's a mixed picture when you look at it. Not it's not the case that every country is going the way of those right wing governments I mentioned. Right, um, and you've written that um, recently that a lot of um, wealthy countries might have a dilemma on their hands when it comes to uh, accepting asylum seekers and refugees. Could you just outline this dilemma for us? Yes. So uh, I would like all asylum seekers to be. Uh, accepted and uh, be able to live somewhere where they can have good lives. But um, if the reality is that political parties that take that line, as, for example, um, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel did at one point when the many Syrian and other refugees were coming, um, if those parties are going to be uh, then fail to get re-elected at their next elections, the result is worse than if they hadn't accepted them in the first place because not only are uh, asylum seekers and refugees and other immigrants going to be rejected, but also these governments, as we see very clearly with Trump, for instance, uh, won't go ahead with the, uh, initiatives required to mitigate climate change uh, and they'll do many other things that are harmful. So I don't think... I don't think you can actually stake everything on trying to educate the public to accept uh, that every asylum seeker who lands on our shores has a right to stay. Uh, that seems to me, at least at present, and this is regrettable, but it seems to me to be going too far, to be mm. pushing the electorate, trying to push the electorate somewhere where it's not willing to go. Mm. Um, so I think that you do need to rethink some of those policies, um, and that might mean putting more funds into providing decent living conditions for refugees in their neighbouring countries. So, for example, in the case of Syria, there's very large numbers of refugees in Lebanon and Jordan. Uh, and if those countries had more support and were giving better or able to provide better lives to the Syrian refugees living there, maybe there'd be less pressure on them to come to Europe and... Uh, you could certainly and should accept some of them, but limited numbers that would be compatible with uh, your, pop your population, your electorate, uh, accepting that that was the right thing to do rather than rejecting it and voting for these more nationalist opposition parties. Mm. Um, and on the topic of uh, migration and immigration, um, I come from a migrant family. Um, and As do I. As do you. Yeah. Um, and so I was going to ask... Um, what was, it, what was your experience like growing up in Australia as a migrant? 
So I was not myself a migrant, but my oh, parents were family. migrants, and um, so I was a first first generation Australian. Um, my experiences on the whole were pretty good. I mean, I right. I was sometimes picked on because um, you wouldn't see it now, but I had very dark, almost black hair, <laughs> and uh, I can't some, believe somewhat, it. <laughs> somewhat dark connection, uh, dark complexion, you know, suntan sort of brown complexion. And at, at this stage, we're talking about the 1950s. Uh, Australians were still predominantly Anglo or mm. Anglo-Celtic, mm. so either they tended to be uh, blonde and blue-eyed and fair-skinned or they were more of that Irish red freckled sort of complexion mm. um, and I was neither of those. So it did happen to me um, as a child that I was sort of told things like, you know, why don't you go back where you come from? Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I, I, and maybe once or twice I was bullied for that, but no, not not at a level that was really serious. I think right, right. Uh, that is a shame, though. Yeah, well, well, it's, it's a shame that it happened at all. But you mm. know, at least um, as I say, you know, I was able to go through with all of the things that I wanted to do, basically, and uh, mm. uh, didn't didn't stop me having a a, a great life here. Mm. Mm. Okay, so through your utilitarian philosophy, it sounds like uh, you're dealing with the idea of equality of opportunity. Um, uh, what do you think about that, equality of opportunity? So equality for me, whether it's equality of opportunity or any other kind of equality, is not the ultimate intrinsic good. Right. It's a means to the end of providing uh, a happier and better life for all of those affected by it. Right. Um, but in practice, I think equality of opportunity does go some way towards doing that because right. it enables people to to do their best um, and to make the most of their capacities and for those capacities to be used for the good of all. Mm. Uh, the, the downside of equality of opportunity is that uh, some people are just better equipped, I think, yeah, uh, right. you know, if you like, innately better equipped to take advantage of certain uh, opportunities. Mm-hmm. Let's say we're talking about opportunities to go to university. Right, Some right. people are more gifted at taking the kinds of tests that get you into university. Mm. So same dilemma as capitalism then. Exactly. Right. It's similar to capitalism. So again, you need the kind of uh, the, the welfare net or the uh, universal basic income uh, that puts a floor under everyone and says, look, even if you cannot succeed in the kind of race that uh, equality of opportunity provides, we're still going to make sure that you have uh, a decent minimum. Great. Um, and uh, on our last serious note, um, a listener has asked us which news outlets you rely on for information and why. Okay. So I suppose um, the thing I read most regularly is the New York Times, which right. I read online, um, and I think is a, a newspaper that checks its facts reasonably carefully, which is not to say that it doesn't ever get things wrong. It certainly sometimes does. Uh, I think it was misled by the George W. Bush uh, administration about whether there were likely to be weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, for example. Right, right. Um, but I still think it's one of the better news sources. Mm. I look at the BBC as well. Mm. Um, and because I am Australian, um, I look at the ABC here. I do look at the Age as well because I want some local stuff, but mm. I think the Age has really fallen far below the levels that uh, I thought it, maybe I was under an illusion, but I thought, you know, when I was younger that the age was a 
pretty reputable paper that took a serious approach to the world. Mm. It's much harder to see it that way today. Mm. Okay, and lastly, I had um, a few friends message me to to ask me to ask you to confirm whether or not your diet uh, consists exclusively of potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) So, is this because they saw something about? This I think it was sure. a word on the street. Word on, word on the street. I, I, word on the street, I didn't, really? That's yeah. very funny because I got this request not long ago from a guy whose name I've now forgotten, but if you look up, if you Google Spud Fit, you can find him, <laughs> um, who asked me for a recipe for um, a potato recipe for a book he's compiling oh. of recipes just for potatoes. And he's someone who uh, weighed, I think, if I remember rightly, 155 kilos and wow. was very unfit right, right, and right. decided that he would eat just potatoes for a year. Ah, I've heard about and this. Yeah, yeah, I've heard, yeah, heard yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he this lost uh, 55 kilos or something and um, got fitter and he's now a great advocate for spuds. Um, <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, uh, no, I enjoy, I, I enjoy spuds quite a lot, but um, it's certainly... <laughs> It's not the Certainly only, not my only diet at all. I eat a lot of fruit and a lot of veggies in particular. That's uh, what I keeps enjoy tofu and uh, all sorts of things. Yeah, mm. uh, pasta. Do you have that famous potato recipe for us now on the top of your head? Or? I can tell you what it is. I oh, can't please, tell you all please. the ingredients. Um, so it's for this uh, Sichuan sort of shredded potato dish. You're familiar with that? Right, yeah. So, no. so you get these potatoes, basically you cut them into sort of matchstick stick-like strips. Um and you stir fry them with uh, ch- with some oil and chilies and um, I think maybe Sichuan pepper or I don't, anyway ch- chili something like that uh, and uh, uh, perhaps a few capsicums as well you put in but it's basically a potato dish but but you don't boil them first and so you're really only stir frying them so they remain kind of crispy not the texture that we're used to with potatoes ah, um, and the uh, secret yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's a great dish so if you you know I'm sure you can look it up and find the actual uh, ingredients or a variety of different ways of doing it but I've I've made it a few times it's not that hard to make <laughs> it has a bit of vinegar in it too that's the other ingredient okay. don't vinegar. forget the vinegar don't yeah. forget <laughs> all right I think that's pretty much all we have yeah, time for Peter like thank you very much for joining us so it's been a pleasure